Hello and welcome to Harness Your Hopes. In this series, six West of Ireland writers have written a new short story on the theme of harnessing hope. They're going to read it and then I'll have a chat with them about their craft and how the theme inspired them. Hi, my name is Sasha DeBoyle, and I'm reading a story called Gestation. Don't let go of the bag, I said, grabbing Ashling's hand, pulling her back from the edge of the bridge. She was solid, four years older and a giant to me. Every time we fought, even just playing, it turned sour when she grew bored, pinning me down under her legs, hitting me too hard. The game ruined. I knew that if I let her know how desperate I was, there's no way she'd come round. But I could hear the rising panic in my voice and I couldn't control it. The slow whine of it grated, making her hard and annoyed. Dad had given her this job to do and there was no doubt she was going to do it, especially when she had me as an audience. She wasn't a coward and she'd prove it. Please, Ashling, come on! I could see all I was doing was making it worse. She wouldn't look at me, just staring out over the bridge at that bag. It was a clear, bright day with a pinch in the air that made my asthmatic lungs ache. The frost had lifted in most parts, but it still touched the corners of each field like those triangles you use to keep photos down in photo albums. The river was cold too, and deep, the deepest part directly below us. The drop wasn't much, but it was enough to do the job. The water ran fast, coming swiftly from a crook in the hills, a babbling icy spring. She held the bag at arm's length, and I could see the small movement it made was making her uncomfortable at least. You don't have to. I do, like. We'll hide them in the shed. Dad found them last time. There's no use, Maeve, just leave it. The bag was a faded plastic job from the weekly shop in town. The Super Value logo on the side scratched and sunwashed from the spot we kept them bundled up near the back door, by the window where the afternoon light streamed in. My throat was closing up from the cold, and because every time the bag moved again, my heart would go like the clappers and I'd feel the tears welling up. I knew if I cried, though, we'd be done for. There's no way Ashling would let me away with that. I never knew that baby animals came in bags until the first calving season I was allowed to go round with Dad and Ashling. Last spring, after I turned eight, Dad decided it was time. The first calf I saw coming out with the bag still round it. Dad said it kept the calf safe in the cow's stomach and gave it food too. I thought that was weird until the cow started eating bits of the bag, so I guess Dad was right. We had to break it open first though. That was the worst part. The bag was tidy at least, even though it was slick with white stuff and red stuff. Dad tore into it with his hands and all this gunk came pouring out. Blood and not blood and watery stuff and, of course, a calf too. He was spindly, half dead with not being able to breathe. His mother started licking him straight away to clean him off and get the blood moving, eating the bag too, like I said. That was the only one I saw like that though. All the ones that came after had got themselves out already. I liked that better. I was out exploring in the back shed where we keep the hay bales when I found her. She was one of our farm cats, my favourite, who I called Maisie even though they were all half feral and Dad said we weren't supposed to give them names. Even though my Auntie Kathleen said it wasn't safe, we were always building things with the hay. It was solid and square and just light enough for a small girl to lift. The day before, Ashling had finished her chores early and we'd built a whole room with walls and a roof and a window all out of the bales. She didn't often have time for playing with me anymore. Not since ma'am. The window was deadly. We'd done it by spacing out the bales in the right way so we could rest one on top of the gap it left. 
It took a lot of bales to make, so the inside was fairly small, but it was cosy and it felt safe. When we finished, Ashling and I were sweating. We'd meant to play a game of invaders and villagers, but by the time we'd finished, it was time to go in. It always seemed to be the way with games, that the preparations took up much more time than the game itself. But the next morning, when I asked Ashling if she wanted to go finish playing, she didn't answer me, she wouldn't even look at me. She kept her eyes down on her phone and then slouched off to help Dad with the milking. It was like that with Ashling these days. One day she'd be like she was before, wanting to play with me and make up stories, and then it would just vanish, like she'd forgotten how. The first kitten was just finished coming out when I found Maisie, tucked away in a corner of our hay room. I'd forgotten my jumper in there the day before, and Maisie had spread out on it. The jumper was wrecked. I knew Dow would be raging, but I couldn't take it off her, not when she was in the middle of having babies. The second kitten was just starting to come out, and Maisie looked tired, but she was already licking the first one clean, taking care around his little face and eyes. I never knew animals could be so small. They were proper wormy and wriggly and their ears were plastered to their heads, so they didn't really look like cats at all. The first one was tabby and white, just like Maisie. He didn't open his eyes. I sat with Maisie and watched while the kittens continued to come out of her. She didn't need any help, not like with calving or with people. She just got on with it. They were the same as the calves though, all with little bags around them that Maisie had to bite into and eat to free them and get them moving. When she was finished, there were five of them, all different kinds of tabby and one little black one, the smallest of them all. They all had the same funny ears and they couldn't seem to be able to open their eyes. They got about by snuffling and sniffing and feeling their way along Maisie's stomach. Sometimes one would start to wander off and she would nose it back in the right direction. I wanted to pick them up, but I remember my Auntie Kathleen saying to me that you shouldn't pick up cats, you should let them come to you, and I thought that probably applied to kittens as well. I thought Maisie might be hungry, so I went back into the house to see if I could steal some milk for her. I was just coming back out the back door with a shallow dish of milk when I saw my dad and Ashling coming round the corner of the milking shed. Ashling hung behind him, walking in his shadow, taking on his gait. Maeve, Dad called out. What are you up to? Nothing, Dad, I said, trying to hold the dish a bit behind me so he wouldn't see. Just playing. Have you finished the milking already? He came up closer to me, hanging his waterproof jacket on the rusty railings that separated the small yard at the back of the house from the bigger farm buildings. What have you got there? He reached out. Is that milk? Maeve, if you're feeding those cats again, there'll be trouble. I told you not to be giving them anything. They aren't pets. His expression was closing up. I knew Dad didn't like it when we didn't follow his rules. I scrabbled around trying to think of anything to say that would stop me getting into trouble. It's for the fairies, Ashling said inserting herself in the conversation and shooting a hard, quick look my way. Auntie Kathleen was telling us some fairy stories about how they would do tricks and mischief on you. She said it was tradition to give the little people milk or cream, especially in the wintertime, so they'd be nice to you in the spring and not take your calves away. Da looked unconvinced. He didn't like any of the old talk. He went to Mass every Sunday and brought us too, but I got the feeling that Mass and superstitions all sat in the same category for him, and it seemed like he only went to avoid a talking to from Auntie Kathleen. She was so much nicer than Da, but he never crossed her. She's right, Dad, I said. It's for the fairies, down by the river. I thought of a place as far away from the hay sheds as I could think of. He still looked suspicious, but then Ashling piped up again. Auntie Kathleen says Mam used to do it every year, she said, staring down Dad in a way I'd only ever seen her try on me. The mention of Mam was enough. His eyes dropped. Well, be careful at the river. It's not frozen and the water is cold enough to kill you. He disappeared into the house, forgetting his jacket. 
Ashling followed me as I walked unsteadily with the dish. Where are you going? Really? Nowhere, I said. You weren't interested this morning. I wasn't not interested. Were too. I'll leave off, Maeve. Dad told me last night I had to start getting up with him to do the milking in the mornings. I've no time for playing. We reached the door of the hay shed. Shh, I said, looking round, but there were only a few stray cats to see us easing open the door and ducking inside. The door gave a huge groan as it shut and I almost dropped the saucer of milk. In the quiet, you could just hear the small noises of new life. I led Ashling over to the hay bales and I showed her Maisie. All the kittens were feeding and Maisie had her eyes closed like she was sleeping. I could see her soft form rising and falling slowly with her breath. She looked tired. I set the milk down next to her, but she didn't look up. Were you going to tell me? Ashling said, kneeling down next to Maisie and stroking her head. Maisie let out a low growl. Don't bother her, I said. She's exhausted and she has to protect her babies now. We sat in silence watching the tiny creatures nuzzle up against their mother, taking them in. I thought if you were nice to me, I'd tell you, I said after a while. Lucky I covered for you, so. Lucky for both of us. You know Da will lose the rag if he finds out, she said. I know, but they're so little. I know. We left Maisie where she was, as we didn't want to move her or touch the kittens, but we shifted the hay bales around, quietly dismantling our house. We made it so they looked like they were stacked like normal, but just behind the row of bales, Maisie and the kittens had their wee bed. You couldn't see it at all from the door. It was brilliant. We managed for two weeks until Da found out. Every day we snuck out to them, sometimes together and sometimes separate, depending on our chores. We'd come back from the hay shed the long way and when Da asked us where we'd been, we'd say we'd been picking stones in the bottom field. School days were harder because Ashling was up every morning for the milking, but I could sneak out if I got up with her and check on the kittens. Maisie didn't eat very much, and I was worried she might not be well after having had them. The kittens grew so fast, by the time they opened their eyes they were twice the size as when they were born, and I'd already started to forget how small they'd been. Every single one of them had blue eyes. I thought that was mad, until Ashling told me all cats have blue eyes when they first open, and that the colour comes later. Was I ever that small? I asked Ashling one night, lying flat on my belly so I could get my face close up to the small black kitten. She took a while to reply. You were really tiny, she said. You came too early. Did I? I turned around in wonder. We had to go visit you in the hospital for ages. That's why you've asthma. No one ever talks about it, I said. It's because of ma'am, she said, not looking at me. She wasn't well after. What happened? I can't really remember. I was only four. You'll have to ask Auntie Kathleen. Don't ask Dad, though. It'll just make him worse. One night we were late coming back in and didn't loop back round from the field like we normally would. Dad was just crossing the yard as we were leaving and spotted us. What are you doing in the hay shed? He shouted, crossing the distance between us in a few great strides. Dad, I started. Ashling, I said you weren't to be out here anymore. If you've got time to waste, I've plenty you can do to fill it. His frame broadened. He took up so much space when he wanted to. I'm sorry, Dad said Ashling, dropping her eyes. I had to spend an extra half hour the other week tidying up in there after you left the place destroyed. Have you been at it again? We had our backs to the hay shed door and tried to spread ourselves across it to deflect his attention from what might be inside. No, Dad, it, we've not. It's fine. I swear, we tidied up, I said. But he pushed past us and strode in. 
I don't care if you've tidied or not, it's not safe. The bales aren't stable and they could fall on you. You could be badly hurt. The concern in his eyes didn't stretch to his voice, which mostly just sounded angry. We trailed in his wake and tried to keep up chatter so he wouldn't hear the kittens. Sorry, Da. You're right, Da. We won't do it again. Look, see, it's nice and tidy. Let's go inside. Yeah, let's go in. What's for tea, Da? Will Auntie Kathleen have the tea ready for us? Then Maisie appeared in the door, back from the hunt to keep her strength up. She disappeared round the side of the bale wall and at the sight of her, her kittens erupted into a chorus of mewing. Da followed round and saw everything. The kittens, the den we'd built, the plates we stole from the kitchen, and my wrecked jumper underneath it all. What in the name of God is going on? There wasn't a drop of light in his voice. We just... I just... Are those our good plates? Ashling? is that Maeve's winter jumper? If you think you're keeping them here, you've another thing coming, he said, storming out of the barn. Maeve, go to your room. Ashling, come with me. He took Ashling into the good sitting room we never use. Auntie Kathleen brought me up some dinner, but there was no sign of her. That was a silly thing you did, Maeve, she said, sitting on the bed beside me. You know how he feels about those cats? But they're just cats. Ah, yeah, but they're a hassle and he's no time for them. They fight and they wreck the place. And your mom was fond of them too. Then he should like them. That's not how it works, I'm afraid. When Ashling finally came in, she didn't say a word. She got into her bed and turned away from me. Ashling, Don't, Maeve. Are you all right? I whispered. Just don't. Was he angry? She turned out the light then. I could hear her crying, but I didn't know what to do. When I woke up the next morning, she was already gone. The sun was just starting to rise, so she must have gone with Dad again. I got dressed as quickly as possible and ran out to the hay shed to check on Maisie. But when I got there, the den was gone. The plates were gone, the kittens were gone. I called all over for Maisie, but there was no sign of her. I ran back out to the yard and was heading towards the milking sheds to see if I could find Ashling when I spotted her, walking in the opposite direction, out towards the river. She had an old super value bag in her hand and she was walking fast. Ashling, I called out. She didn't turn around but started walking faster down the track. My legs were shorter so I had to run and by the time I'd caught up with her she was standing on the low bridge at the river holding the bag out in front of her. The bag moved and I could just hear the kittens mewing inside. She was stony-faced. I'd never seen her look more like my dad. Ashling, you can't, I tried again. Someone has to take care of them. He doesn't care, Maeve. She looked at me for the first time and I could see the tears in her eyes. He said this is what has to happen. He says if we rear them, they'll just have more babies and then they'll have babies and then we'll be overrun. He says we're not allowed to be soft on them. He says it's just how the world works. Auntie Kathleen said Mam took care of them. Well, Mam's not here anymore, Maeve. It's just you and me and Dad. You don't have to be like him. She looked at me one more time and let go of the bag. Were you always a big reader, Sasha, and when did you begin to write your own stories? That's a that's a good question. Um, I think, I mean, I've always been, yeah, a big, big reader. Um, my mum is a writer and the, the house is full of books. So basically anything I could get my hands on. 
like a lot of people will say, oh, you know, I was reading Shakespeare or Dickens or whatever when I was a kid. And I, I loved children's books. Um, I think there's a real magic to to what they create. I remember once getting my hands on um, a copy of WB Yeats's like old Irish fairy tales. And my mum like bragged about it to all of her friends. It was like, oh, yes, well, Sasha's reading Yeats. But uh, <laughs> but I wasn't. I was just looking at the pictures. <laughs> so I've never finished the book and I felt a bit guilty about that. But apart from that, yeah, loads and loads of reading. And um, I think when I first started writing, it was always writing and drawing together. And I do still draw, uh, but less less combining the two. Uh, and I would often try and finish or rewrite stories my mum had written. Um, so a lot of my early attempts were like that. You're the former director of the Courage Festival, so... How has that influenced your own writing? You know, you're, mm-hmm. you've kind of been immersed in it. So is that a good or a bad thing? I think it's a double-edged sword. Um, so I've been working in literature uh, my entire career. So when I finished uni, I went straight into this and I've worked for mostly in Scotland, but a lot of different literature organisations. And then three or four years ago, came back here to run Courch. And uh, I mean, I, I adore it. I actually really love the job um, because you do, you get to surround yourself with words and you get to find writers that like inspire you and 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 the ones that you just feel so passionately about and then you get to bring them to an audience and you get to say you know it's like when you there's a book you really love and you press it into the hand of a friend and you go oh my god I know you would love this but you get to do it for everybody and I really really enjoy that having said that um the role is really really full on and so after after doing three festivals I thought there's not for me, anyway, I, I find it very hard to strike a balance between that and my own writing. And I thought, okay, I took a bit of a break after the last festival, and I sat down and I, I, I you know, considered it, and I, I realized if I don't quit now, <laughs> I'll never quit because it's too exciting. You know, there's there's always another festival, there's always another brilliant book, there's always another project. And so I thought, okay, I'll take I'll take a step back and I'll see if I can find a better balance between the two. So I actually will still be freelancing for the festival, but uh, <laughs> just with hopefully a bit more time to write some more stories. Uh, do you think that writing is something you have to continually <clears throat> work at or is there some sort of like creative spark that hits you and <clears throat> you can just, it flows out of you? I think it's a combination of the two. Like if we're talking about a creative spark, there are moments where inspiration strikes for sure and you have an idea. However, you kind of have to train yourself to be open to those things. So in the periods where my job has been really full on, I haven't had an idea in months, years even. And I've thought, oh, well, I'll simply never have an idea again. And then it's only when you sit down and when you have the space in your brain to let that kind of percolation happen that new ideas appear. Um, and then the other thing is uh, is that I would say consistency is really important in writing. And it's something that I definitely lack um, because you like... I think people think about the idea of like raw genius in writing a lot and I'm sure it does exist but the more that you write and the more that you chip away at it the better you will get over time like it, it, it's almost impossible not to improve so as long as as long as you keep working at it your work will get better over time or at least I'm hoping. <laughs> in the story you've just read so there's a lovely interplay between the two sisters Maeve and Ashling. Mm-hmm. So how did you achieve it? Like you had to kind of place yourself in the younger sister mm-hmm. and the older sister. How did you go about it? I think there's something about those those moments in childhood or those ages where where you have a decision to make um, and like your eyes are opened for the first time to, to kind of the world of grown-ups and what they're going through. There, there's a lot of those little revelations as you grow up and uh, I'm I'm really interested in those and I'm also really interested in the dynamics between two people as they figure those things out for different times so I actually have quite a few pieces 
that, that go back to those kind of age groups. And I'd say the interest there possibly stems from the fact that I have three sisters. So, you know, there was always stuff that I was figuring out that like my little sister hadn't quite cottoned on to yet or that my older sister was miles ahead with. And you're always, you know, growing up at different speeds. So, yeah, it's an interesting thing for me. This is a question I was asking um, Jerry in his interview as well, but you almost had a bit of performance when you're doing the different voices when you were reading it. So is it something that you would practice, you know, for the dialogue, say, OK, this is Ashling's voice, this is Maeve's voice, mm-hmm. this is the father's voice. Is it something that you'd read out loud? I definitely would read out loud. I, de- I did not know that I do the voices. That is an interesting <laughs> thing to learn about myself. Um, but I think I think reading dialogue out loud reading everything out loud is really important to hear the cadence of it. And I think especially if you write within Hiberno-English, you know, there's such a musicality to the language um, that it just, it likes to be read aloud and you want to make sure that the rhythms and the cadences of it kind of trip along properly. It's interesting because I, uh, as you might tell from my last name, um, I'm not originally from Ireland. I'm a Belgian citizen, but we moved here when I was five. So I'm like Irish by formation, I guess. Um, and my accent wavers depending on where I am. And I remember doing a writing course at uni and my tutor not being able to tell where I was from in class until I submitted a piece of writing. And then she said, because I read it out, she said, you didn't tell me you were Irish. <laughs> I was like, what do you mean? <laughs> and she could tell from the writing. So that was really interesting because I never really felt Irish. So. The theme of the podcast is hope, harness your hopes. So we end on Ashling letting go of the bag in the story. So where do you see hope in the story I think yeah it is a bit of a bleak one <laughs> I guess I guess I started with you know those little pockets of hope when you're going through a sad time uh, and how even a small interaction like creating a, a place of safety for a stray cat to have some kittens or or that safe space where it's still okay for you to be a kid and to play uh, was the hopefulness in the story and then I guess, uh, sadly, my my twisted mind was like, and what happens if you poke that? <laughs> what happens if if you poke holes in the bag of hope? Uh, extended metaphor there. <laughs> you know, this is short story writing, but mm-hmm. have you, you know, do you do other kind of writing? Do you do poetry? Do you do longer form stuff? Mm-hmm. So I don't really do poetry. I have some very bad poems from my past, which no one will ever see. Um, but the last couple of years, the thing that I've actually found easiest to come back to while working is creative nonfiction. So I've been writing quite a few essays and it's it's kind of coincided with me returning to Ireland. So there, there's clearly something that I'm working through about coming back here and thinking about ideas of home and belonging. And, and you know, when I was in Scotland, I think I, I felt comfortable with the fact that I didn't belong. And then I thought when I came home, I was like, oh, I wonder if I'll... I wonder if I'll belong here. And I do, but I also don't. And and that's been really, really interesting material for kind of going over. I mean, I don't know if it's interesting for anyone else, but I really enjoyed it. So I've got quite a few essays done and then about three or four more on the go. Uh, and I have some plans for some bigger projects, but uh, I'm trying not to think too much about them or look directly at them because uh, they need more time and my brain doesn't have that right now, but hopefully soon. <laughs> and do you think that... You have to kind of almost use different parts of your brain there. So if if you're writing an essay, like, do you have to think about it differently than if you're writing a short story? They're definitely different, yeah. There's something about... But the, but they kind of serve, like, in terms of the writing of them, they serve the same purpose, which is they kind of help you turn over a subject in your mind and 
and find what's beneath for you anyway. Um, it's so funny because for years I, I wrote fiction because I felt like writing creative nonfiction would be too close to home and I wouldn't feel comfortable writing about myself. And then now the kind of fiction I want to write feels very personal and so I'm straying to creative nonfiction because at least there I can explore nonfiction safely. I'm like, well, I, I can I can decide what I'm sharing. Whereas like there, there's like a core of truth to fiction that kind of comes out when you don't expect it. And then you're like, oh, I didn't know I felt that way. <laughs> and even though I'm sure no one else could see it, uh, that fear is there because, because there is a real vulnerability to that fiction. So yeah, I guess they are different. And what about in terms of the characters? Do they stick with you? Do you think about Maeve and Ashling afterwards and wonder oh, what's going to happen in their lives as they grow up or the next stage or, you know, another story? Um, I've not returned to any characters yet, but they do tend to, like I said, I've returned to the same age groups. So I do wonder if there might be something about a certain age group that I would then focus on for a longer project. Um, in the drafting of the story, though, there were a couple of options for the ending. And going over those was an interesting one um, because, yeah, you know, there's the option of perhaps Ashling choosing not to uh, let go of the bag and kind of see through the plans that her father had made. Um, but there's also an idea where Maeve would jump in the river after them and given that it's very cold and the river is dangerous and she is weak and asthmatic, that that would not go well. Um, but that seemed a little, a little too dark. <laughs> <laughs> I thought leave it leave it in that kind of teetering where you don't really know what's going to happen. And you have kind of been in my seat for many times where you have been interviewing mm -hmm. uh, writers. So is there anything that you, you know, any piece of advice that you can remember that from interviewing all these people that you, that you have taken with you for your own writing? Or uh, maybe that's too broad a question. Like, is there any, mm. I don't know, where, where somebody had even just a line or two where you went, oh, yeah, and that's something you remember. Oh, I mean, loads. I, I find it hugely inspiring to have conversations with writers. It's it's one of my favorite things about my job. And, and I still I actually do it less when I'm working at Courch. I do it more in a freelance capacity because you just get to be really nosy, right? You get to read their work, which you love, and then you get to kind of delve into everything that you think is brilliant about it and, and ask exactly what you want to ask. Um, I think I'm trying to... There's a writer that I really adore and his name is Alexander Chi. And uh, it was about writing creative nonfiction. Uh, I asked him a question about it once because I was, I was just interested in how, how the kind of the lyric essay that is more common these days in creative nonfiction comes together. Because often, often it seems on the surface like it's about one thing, but that it ends up being about something else instead. And uh, he just said something really beautiful, which was. It's like, you know, when you have like a, a knitted sweater and there's a loose thread and when you pull on it, it unravels. He said that with, with writing creative nonfiction and kind of exploring the through line of a piece, it's the opposite of that. So you pull on the string and then you just let it kind of, it ravels together. Uh, and I just love the idea of that kind of building out of nowhere. And you just have to kind of sit lightly with, with the topics that you think are of interest there. And then it will slowly kind of weave itself together and you'll you'll come to some conclusion learn something new at the end of it and I've definitely found that to be the case yeah, it's a lovely image of mm -hmm. you know the he's a very good writer <laughs> <laughs> you've touched a little bit on it but tell us what's going to be next for you yeah so I have three or four creative non-fiction pieces that I am working on at the moment uh, that I've 
uh, I'm hoping to get some funding to support. So uh, fingers crossed. And then next year, I have a larger project in mind, but I need to <laughs> need to do some budgeting because it's big. And I, I just, I guess I'm not, I don't want to rush it. I know that, you know, a book takes time and I am in awe of people who make the time and manage to write an entire book. So uh, I'm just going to go very gently on myself <laughs> and hope for the best. Okay, thanks Sasha. Oh, thanks so much for having me. This was lovely. Harness Your Hopes was produced and presented by Alan Meany. Music was by Eamon Bailey. The writer on this episode was Sasha De Boyle. The programme is supported by a Creative Ireland bursary from Galway County Council. <laughs>